0: Well, good evening, brethren, and welcome to another Wednesday night Bible study. If you were looking for music to play on the Sabbath, you certainly could not go wrong by playing Handel's Messiah. It's uh, some beautiful, exquisite music, the book of Isaiah, uh, put to fine music. And that song in particular is very relevant to this evening, the lyrics, that the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. We're going to get into Psalm 92 and 93. Uh, Psalm 92 is the psalm that's dedicated to the Sabbath. Uh, Psalm 93 begins, or really Psalm 92 begins, the enthronement psalms uh, that will take us through, I believe, to Psalm 99. And part of the central part of uh, Book 4 that we're studying. And really a central part of the psaltery. So let's open with a word of prayer And then we'll unpack these two psalms this evening, God willing. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord. We praise you. Uh, We just thank you, God, for your faithfulness. We thank you, God, for your wisdom. Uh, We thank you for Jesus Christ. And thank you, God, for our faith in him. We pray, Lord, that you will continue to strengthen us uh, through your word, that you will cleanse us through your word, and help us, Father, to conform our thinking, our thoughts, our hearts, with Christ. We praise you, Lord. We thank you for him. Pray, God, that you'll bless our study this evening as you do as we pray each week. Thank you, God. We ask this all in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So, brethren, we are uh, up to Psalm 92. And as I mentioned, this, this section of Psalms is going to introduce what are known as the enthronement Psalms, basically introducing God as King. Now, we've had some trouble with the internet today. I don't know what it's like uh, for you, but I think it's cold, it's windy, so the weather may not be great. You may want to check us out on YouTube or Facebook. Maybe the stream will be better there. And certainly, we will be recording this, so we'll be posting the uh, recording in the archive as soon as we can. So hopefully, um, if the live stream uh, is not great, uh, hopefully the recording will be much better for us. So Psalm 92 begins a psalm or song for the Sabbath day. This is the only psalm in this entire psaltery that is dedicated to the Sabbath. And and the scholars and the commentators are really puzzled by this psalm's dedication to the Sabbath. Because when they read it, there's nothing in it explicitly speaking about the Sabbath. And yet it's devoted to or dedicated to the Sabbath. So let's unpack this. And, and you know, Psalm 92, the, these Psalms in Book 4 are really answering the questions that were posed at the end of Book 3. And so just by way of reminder, we did this last week, but let's do it again uh, this week. Let us look at some of the, uh, or the key question posed at the end of Psalm 89 or the end of Book 3. He says here, your seed, speaking of David, will I establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. Selah. This is the Davidic covenant that God has made. But then dropping down now to the tail end of the psalm in verse 38, we see instead that the psalmist cries out, but God, you have cast off and abhorred. Even though you made this covenant with us, now the situation that we're in. You have cast off and abhorred. You have been angry with your anointed. You have made void. You, God, you did this. You have made void the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown. You have done this, God. You've profaned his crown by casting it to the ground. You, God, have broken down all his hedges. You have brought his strongholds to ruin. So, so the psalmist ends this part of scripture uh, puzzled by God's position and, and God's turning away from the covenant. And, and he wants to know, God, what, what, what's happened? Why, why have you turned your back on the covenant? You promised these things. And now we've lost, we've lost the throne. The crown has been cast down to the ground. You, 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 you've, you've removed the protection from us. Uh, we're, we're being slaughtered. Uh, so Psalm Book Three ends with Psalm 89, and it's just a puzzle. Like well, what's happened? There's, there's, it's, it's not a, a high. It's not ending with, on a high note. And so now we come into Book Four, which actually begins on a high note, and it, it really answers these puzzling questions that were left in. Book three. Now, we know the narrative, but it it doesn't hurt us to just keep repeating it so that it gets cemented in our minds. But let's go back over the narrative. We'll go back to what Moses wrote here in uh, the Torah, where he writes in Deuteronomy 30, verse two. And you shall return unto the Lord your God, so you, you will repent, and you shall obey his voice according to all that I command you this day. That's all that's in Torah, that they will actually observe this. Moses is looking into the future. You, not just you, but your children also. And you'll do it with all your heart and with all your soul. And then the Lord your God will end your slavery. That's when the Lord will end your captivity. And he will have compassion upon you. And he will return and gather you From all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. So Moses saw the break, but not the end of the covenant. He could see these people are going to go into the promised land. They're going to break the covenant. They're going to activate the curse clauses of the covenant. But the covenant is still in effect. And because of the bigger covenant that God has with Abraham, that God will then intervene. And that promise was inherited by Isaac and then by Israel. Um, and, and that overshadows, in a sense, the Mosaic Covenant with its if-then clauses. There's a clause in the Abrahamic Covenant, which is unconditional. It's all on God to, to, to make it happen. So Moses could see, even though they're going to activate the curse clauses, that in fact God would still be faithful to his promise to Abraham. So what do we see in Isaiah? Isaiah. We see the curse clauses and we see the explanation as to why God has to activate these curse clauses. In Isaiah 5 and verse 4, we read, All of this is leading to Psalm 92. So we need to, the, 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 the commentators, the scholars are puzzled by why is Psalm 92 dedicated to the Sabbath? Why, why is it in this um, book 4 of the enthronement Psalms? And it's this Psalm that's dedicated to the Sabbath. Well, we need the backstory before we go to Psalm 92, so we can understand why, in fact, it is in the Psaltery in Book 4. Isaiah 5 and verse 4, God says, What could have been done more to my vineyard? His vineyard being Israel and Judah. He says, What else could I have done that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, it brought forth wild grapes or poisonous grapes, I wanted grapes that I could enjoy. Instead, it brought forth grapes that kill. This is what, and I did everything I could to to make this vineyard successful. And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. So God has finally come to this. I can do nothing else. This is my vineyard. I don't have other vineyards. This is my vineyard. This is where I expect to have fruit. And I've done everything I can to make this vineyard successful. And it has been the exact opposite. It's it's turned poisonous. Now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof. So what we see in Psalm 89, where the psalmist is, is bemoaning their fate and complaining that God has taken away the hedge. Yeah, that's exactly what he said he would do if they were unfaithful. I will take away the hedge thereof and it shall be eaten up. So beasts of the field will come in and take it. And I will break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. I will remove my protection from these people. And I, God, will do this. I will lay it waste. So the, the psalmist in Psalm 89 is like, God, you have um, turned your, your back on us. You, you, you covenanted, but now the, 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 the crown is cast to the ground. And, and we're lost, and we're, we're, we're being trampled. Yes, exactly. I will lay it to waste. It shall not be pruned nor digged. It won't be cared for anymore. But there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. God has had it. He's reached the the end of his patience. And so even nature will turn. So the wild beasts of the field will destroy them. But even nature will turn on them. Why? For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah... His pleasant plant, and he looked for judgment. That's what he wanted from them—judgment in the earth to come from his house of Israel and Judah. But behold, oppression, and you can hear the voice of Habakkuk crying out, saying, "Lord, I'm looking for justice and judgment, but I just see oppression within the covenant, the covenant community." And God is saying, "Yeah, I was looking for these things too, and all all I see is oppression. For I was looking for righteousness." But behold, a cry, the cry of the victims within Israel and Judah who are oppressed by Israelites, fellow Israelites and fellow Jews. Uh, God is looking for righteousness instead. It's like when he says, behold, a cry. You can also almost think of Israel's beginning when they were enslaved by Pharaoh and they were crying out to God and their cries reached heaven and God responded and took down Pharaoh. Now, isn't it ironic that the cries reaching up to heaven now at this part of the story are also from Israelites. But the oppressor is no longer Pharaoh. It's fellow Israelites. And this is what God hears. And he comes to rescue the meek and and and, and, and the poor. But having said all of that as to what he's going to do to his vineyard, Isaiah still tells us, or God tells us through Isaiah, That we mustn't write off Jerusalem. In Matthew 23, God says that Christ says to them that you won't see me again until you shall say. So we mustn't write her off. Because he now instructs someone who's faithful, who understands the narrative, speak you comfortably to Jerusalem. And cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished. This is why Handel's Messiah it's so such a, it's not just, you know, exquisite beautiful music, but it's based on Isaiah. It's Isaiah put to music. And so now that we truly understand, most people are always beautiful, they unto us a son is born and they have no clue what it means, but we understand what it means. And so we can listen to this kind of music on the Sabbath and just be so inspired. So he says to us, says Speak you comfortably to Jerusalem. Although Jerusalem has been earmarked for destruction, for, for the abomination that makes desolate, God now says, speak comfort to her. And cry unto her. This is urgent that you get this message to her. Make sure she hears it. Cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished. So the thing that God wanted that was spoken all the way back by Moses, it's been accomplished. She has turned and repented. So now that phase, because the curse clauses are not to destroy Israel. Moses says that these curse clauses that you're going to activate are to turn you to true repentance. Not superficial, hypocritical, theatrical, cosmetic uh, repentance, but heartfelt, deep, true repentance. Now that that's been achieved through the warfare, somebody has to tell her it's okay now. It's done. Her warfare is accomplished that her iniquity is pardoned for she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. That's what's happening. Now, as we fast forward into this future of the narrative, now that that's accomplished, Jerusalem and Judah and Israel as a whole can now be the shining light to the world. The world can now be set right. God's plan can now be activated. And the whole world can now benefit from the covenant relationship that God has with his covenant people. <clears throat> so we can fast forward into the future listening to Zechariah. And Zechariah tells us <clears throat> that it shall come to pass. So so even though there's going to be this warfare against Jerusalem, there's going to be this abomination that makes desolate, God is then going to save Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is going to overpower enemies and Judah is going to overpower their enemies supernaturally with the help of the Lord and the world will be set right and the whole world will come to realize who God's covenant people are and he says now <clears throat> and it shall come to pass that everyone every human being that came against Jerusalem thinking they had the upper hand and came to destroy Jerusalem And now after this epic battle where Christ himself comes to assist Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass that every human that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem. So now there has to be this deception going out through the world where people are falling into this wrong point of view that ultimately leads them to believe that Jewish lives don't matter. And they're going to align themselves with all other lives that they think matter and they're going to fight. They're going to get caught up and fight against Jerusalem because all nations are going to go for this, and they're all going to agree that these Jews need to be taken out of the land and destroyed and taken taken as slaves. God, but God's going to act on their behalf. And all these nations, all these people that came against Jerusalem, even they now, you could have, ne- if you didn't have access to Revelation, you would never predict this. But this is what's going to happen. All of them shall even go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So this is really critical now, and that's what Book 4 is all about in the Psaltery. It, these are the enthronement psalms. This is about God being established as King, that the great God Almighty, who, who came to earth, and a lot of people don't believe that, but we know it's true, that God who came to earth, that he is going to be enthroned. So the the, the, the the Jesus Christ, the being who left the Godhead and took upon himself the form of a lowly servant who became the lowest of the lowest and, and, and these Jews who are despised, this Jew now becomes king and he takes the highest office possible in creation. And all people will see that the man who was made the lowest now has a name that's higher than any other name. And this is what these enthronement psalms are all about. And now we can begin to understand why a psalm dedicated to the Sabbath heads up this part of the psaltery. It's at the front end of Book 3 of the psaltery. Because it's introducing, it's not so much a psalm about the Sabbath as much it is a psalm about the Sabbath rest. This is all about the Sabbath rest and what the Sabbath actually points to. And it's not just the Sabbath. When they accept the Sabbath, they're going to accept all the holy days. And the whole world is going to be keeping the Sabbath and the holy days. And so we see that here, that from year to year, they're going to worship the king. That everybody's going to acknowledge who the true king of the earth is. He's the king of Israel. He's the holy one of Israel. So they'll be keeping the holy days. But then... In addition to the annual holy days, what does Isaiah also tell us? He also tells us here, in addition to what Zechariah points out, in verse 23 of 66, that it shall come to pass that from one month to the next, from one new moon to another, and from one, what? Sabbath to another. Every week, every Sabbath, shall all flesh come to worship before me, says the Lord. So the whole world is going to be keeping the Sabbath. And the whole world will be at rest. And this is the understanding that we need to come into Psalm 92 with. So obviously we see here from this, the, the creation of the Sabbath. That on the seventh day. God ended his work which he had made. And he rested on the seventh day. From all his work which he has had made. This is how the Sabbath was created. And it was created after all of the other creative effort, that after he created the environment, and then he created the animals, the sea animals and the land animals, and then he created man last. And created the, the, the marriage the marriage covenant and the family institution. And then he came on the Sabbath now to enjoy the harmony with, with his, the pinnacle of his creation, the reflection of himself. The, the image and likeness of himself, he came to enjoy this in the beautiful setting that he created. And this was the purpose of the Sabbath, for, for God and man to enjoy the work of God's hands. So unfortunately, the whole thing went sideways, but ultimately we're, we're getting back to this state. So the whole world will be at rest. And this, of course, then should bring to mind, before we come to Psalm 92 proper, Hebrews 4. Verse 1, let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest. Any of you should seem to come short of it. So the purpose of the whole covenant community is to come into this rest with God. And this is what Psalm 92 actually is pointing to. So people are confused because they don't understand the narrative. But we understand the narrative. So we don't need to be confused. This is a psalm or song for the Sabbath day. And that is, even though it doesn't talk specifically about the Sabbath, it's pointing, the whole, the, all these psalms are pointing to the millennial rest that Jesus Christ is coming to introduce to the earth. Verse 1. It is a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord and to sing praises unto your name, O Most High. No one is higher than the Most High God. And it is a good thing to sing praises to his name. <clears throat> he says now, and, and, and notice the high note that, this, that we come into this psalm with, that instead of the despondency that we saw at the end of Book 3, we see great joy here, and, and it's, we want to give thanks to the Lord and, and sing praises unto his name. This is certainly the, a, a Sabbath worship you can see this. Uh, and then he says, what, what do we want to do? To show forth your chesed in the morning. That the chesed is his covenant faithfulness. His covenant love for Israel. That, that this is what they want to show forth. And this is what the Sabbath, the millennial rest. This is what it's going to show forth. And I think in the past, we may have missed this. We, we went from, you know, um, the, the world being taken captive by Satan to Jesus Christ returning to all men being at one with God and the millennium and everybody's at one with God. And we completely wrote Israel out of the narrative when Israel is the protagonist of the narrative. The the book is all about Israel and the relationship that God has with Israel and everything he does to save Israel. And so the, the proper understanding now is that, yes, the world is held captive and more specifically, the covenant community is being held captive, is being, is being earmarked for death and destruction. Certainly by Satan, but, but by God's allowance, as we, we studied the book of Job recently, earlier this year, as symbolic of what Israel must go through in order to be cleansed. But once, as Moses said, once they're cleansed, the atonement, the at one is not God being at one with the whole world. In fact, the world is still at odds with God and even at the end of the millennium there's still rebellion against God so the atonement is not with the whole world but as Moses foretold the atonement the atonement is for the covenant community and once the covenant community is at one and at peace with God then we can have the feast of ingathering then we can bring in the other nations and they will be led in worship by the covenant community so that's the proper understanding of the narrative. And now this, this, this is what this is about, that the covenant community can now show to the world the chesed, the covenant love, the covenant faithfulness in the morning, and the amunah, the, the, the faithfulness every night. And, and you think of that Hebrew word amunah, and, and the way we say uh, when somebody prays and we absolutely agree and that's the way it's going to be, we say amen. It is so. And, and this is how we can think about God, that it, when he speaks, it is so. So it's the kased and the emuna that, that, that the, these, the covenant community is to show to the world in the millennial setting. Upon an instrument of ten strings, and upon the psaltery, so think of this beautiful music, upon the harp with a solemn sound. So, so the music is designed to evoke an illicit emotion. It's not just music you sit and you couldn't care less. You're so bored out of your skull as you're listening to the music. That's not the intention at all. This is going to take some very skilled, talented musicians who are truly devoted to God, who can play this music in such a way that it moves men's souls. And they realize just how profound this point in time in man's history is. Now, this singing to the Lord, Isaiah spoke of this. In Isaiah 52 and verse 9, speaking to the covenant community, break forth into joy, sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem. You see, we understand the narrative. Yes, Jerusalem is earmarked for destruction, but that's not the end. In fact, it's the beginning. It, it's the end. It's the beginning, not the end. That that when Jerusalem is earmarked for destruction and subjected to the abomination that makes desolate, that that's when they'll finally wake up. That's when the blindness, the scales of Judah, will be removed. And they will truly repent and turn to their true Savior, and we can then speak comfort to her and say unto Judah, behold, your God. <clears throat> so they are to break forth into, into joy, after all of this, this destruction, this this warfare. Sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people; he has redeemed Jerusalem. So this is this is a really critical, critically important text that uh, we, we, we should almost have this whole narrative uh, by heart by now. That This is something that we just truly understand, and it's everywhere in Scripture. So coming back to Psalm 92. For you, Lord, have made me glad. How? Through your work. Remember in the Genesis account, God worked for six days, and then he created the Sabbath by resting. And now here in this um, psalm devoted to the Sabbath day, the psalmist writes that you, Lord, have made me glad through your work. God was actually doing something. And finally we come to the end result of what he was doing. And it it brings forth such joy that the whole nation can break out into great singing and great joy. And and the great musicians, the talented musicians – Think of uh, Handel's Messiah, the the exquisite beauty in the music and the effort, the effort in putting this music together. He says now, listen, I will triumph in the works of your hands. I will triumph in the works of your hands. What does that mean? What does the psalmist mean? That, That my triumph will be in the works of your hands. God is doing something. And the, the member of this covenant community is saying, my victory was actually in your work, what you were doing. Let's read on. Let's go to Isaiah 60. What is this work of his hands? He says in Isaiah 60, verse 21, we'll just cut into it here. We should really read the whole passage. But we could read the whole Bible, we'd be here all night. Your people, shall be all righteous. This is the end result. This is what God is working towards. This covenant community where all the people, what Moses foresaw, shall be all righteous. So Jeremiah says that they'll no longer, one will say to another, know the Lord, because they'll all know me. They shall inherit the land forever. That's exactly what Moses said. They'll be brought back to the land and they'll inherit it forever because that's the covenant. The covenant is about the land. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, this is the work of the Lord. This is what God is doing. And if we're not aligned with this, then we're not aligned with the work of God. This is what God is doing. He's doing it right now. He's been doing it for thousands of years. This, This is what he's about. And we must be about our father's business. Judah and Israel are the branch of his planting. The whole earth is going to see that this is the branch of his planting. This is the work of his hands. When, so when we say, speak comfort to Jerusalem, that her warfare has been accomplished. That, that means that work is happening. God is doing something. And it's now complete. And now we can come into the Sabbath rest. The work of my hands, that I may be glorified. That God will be glorified in Israel. And he's doing this so that the whole earth can see his glory. Isaiah 64 in verse 8. He says, but now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. Israel is the clay. And you are our potter. And we all are the work of your hand. Israel, repentant Israel, is the repentant Israel in which God can be glorified, is the work of of God's hands and so the Sabbath points to all of this work being done in Isaiah uh, 44 now he says he'll be glorified in Israel in Isaiah 44 and verse 8 he says to Israel fear you not neither be afraid so th- this is speaking to a people who are earmarked by the whole earth all the nations of the earth agree together these people need to be destroyed and they bring all of their firepower to destroy these people and remove them from the land. And God says to Israel. Fear you not. Neither be afraid. Haven't I told you from that time? And haven't I declared it? You are, you are even my witnesses. You're my, you, you have the scriptures. This whole plan was laid out by Moses. From the beginning. You have the scriptures. Everything's been written. You're my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yeah, there's no God. I know not any. So they're the work of his hands. And they are his witnesses. So God is fully expecting them to declare to the whole world the chesed and the amunah of God. And and to do that with such glory, to do that with such praise and joy and, and talented musicians, that the whole world comes and sees like, wow, this whole thing was written from the beginning. We, we were deceived by Satan to think that we could move these people out of the land when God has promised it to them. So these are his witnesses. What they're going to do is say, yes, we were guilty. We betrayed our God. And it was written from Moses that this is what would happen to us. But Moses also wrote that God would never uh, turn his back on the covenant. All we did was activate the curse curse clauses and now through God's mercy we have truly repented and we, we are all now righteous before the Lord and we're now here to declare to you the righteousness of the Lord because we are the work of his hands. And now he can rest from doing that work because the warfare is accomplished and we have now become the people that he had envisioned all the way from the beginning. When he set in motion the plan of salvation to redeem mankind. He says now that they are to be his witnesses. Back to Psalm 92. O oh Lord, how great are your works. And your thoughts are very deep. Even, even uh, the Apostle Paul talks about the mysteries of God. And, and, and the mystery of the ages. And, and how unfathomable are these mysteries. And they can only come to us by revelation. We could never figure this out. He says that the, the God's thoughts are so deep and, and his works are so great. And then he says, a brutish man doesn't know. Neither does a fool understand this. So now there's this contrast between the worshiper of God and the covenant community and their, their, their awe of his glory and his wisdom. And then there's the idiot, the imbecile, the fool, the brute who has no clue, who's drunk on power, who, 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 who thinks that, you know, they control everything. It's, it's just uh, amazing how, you know, David says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. But but here we see the absolute uh, contrast between the people of God and the fools. Even though they may be the most powerful people on earth, that instead of looking forward to the great rest, they want to look forward to a great reset, and they want to use disease and death and oppression as an opportunity to gain greater power. As powerful as these people are, as intellectual as they are or they think they are, God wants to say to them, you're fools. You're, you're brute beasts. You don't know anything. So that's what the psalmist is showing us here, that, that in the end, God wins. He says, a brutish man, and these these men can be very intellectual, they can be very powerful, they can be very rich, they think they control everything, they can vaccinate all human beings, they can do whatever they want with humans. They're fools. A brutish man knows not, neither does a fool understand this. Here, in fact, these same people uh, who are brutes, God says, in the end, the sons also of them that afflicted you. and These are powerful people. They shall come bending unto you, and all they that despised you shall bow themselves down at the soles of your feet. This is the future of Israel, and this is the future of all those who think they can fight against the people of God. And they shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. They're going to acknowledge this. Right now they don't know anything. They're fools. But eventually the whole world will come into this Sabbath rest and will acknowledge God. In verse 18 of Isaiah 60, Hamas, violence, Hamas shall no more be heard in your land, wasting nor destruction within your borders. Not anymore. But you shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. So instead of these walls being constructed to defend against violence, there will be no more violence. And the walls will just be an indication of where to find salvation. And the gates where to come and praise the Lord. Back to Psalm 92. For lo, your enemies, O Lord. You know, these are Israel's enemies, but but they're actually God's enemies. So all these people who are um, rallying against the covenant community. Yes, the covenant community is evil. God says of them, I was looking for righteousness. And instead I found, I heard a cry of oppression people being oppressed I was looking for a judgment but instead I found oppression so yes don't don't come and tell me Adrian these people are evil I know God knows God tells us that's not the point the point is they're God's people and anybody who, who destroys them will be destroyed by God this is scripture so these people are the enemies of God these, these brutish people who want to oppress the covenant community They're God's enemies. So he says, for lo, your enemies, O Lord, lo, your enemies shall perish. All the workers of iniquity shall be scattered. And that's really um, ironic in the sense that these people are going into the land of Judah to scatter the Jews. Because that's the covenant uh, curse. That if they're unfaithful, they'll be scattered and taken out of the land. So that's what happens to them. But then the enemies end up being scattered. And that is Torah. That's exactly what Moses wrote. <clears throat> that in Torah, Deuteronomy 30, <coughs> excuse me, and verse 7, and the Lord your God will put all these curses upon your enemies. What curses? The curses of Deuteronomy 28 and 29. One of which is that you'll be scattered And so now we see in the Sabbath psalm, the psalm dedicated to the millennial rest, it's the enemies that end up being scattered as the rest is being implemented. And the Lord your God will put all these curses upon your enemies and on them that hate you, which persecuted you. Verse 10 of Psalm 92. But my horn shall you exalt like the horn of a unicorn. So the horn really represents the strength of the nation. It shall be exalted. I shall be anointed with fresh oil. So this is going to be the priest class of the earth. My, so right now we sort of have the Silicon Valley priest class. Where they're untouchable. They're, they're the most powerful people on the earth. Well that's all going to go away. And the most powerful people on the earth are going to be the worshippers of Jehovah. My eye, verse 11, shall see my desire on my enemies. So yes, these are the enemies of, of Judah. But they're God's enemies, so they're one and the same. The enemies of Judah are the enemies of God. Because the enemies of of God are going against his covenant plan. They're going against his counsel. And and yes, they're afflicting God's people, so they're they're the enemies of God's people as well. My eyes shall also see my desire on my enemies. And my ears shall hear my desire of the wicked that rise up against me. The righteous shall flourish. So this is the, the outcome of this Sabbath rest, that the warfare has been accomplished, the work of God's hands is now complete, the, the world can be made right, everything can be put in its right place, and the righteous shall flourish like the palm tree. It takes us right back to Psalm one of what the, the the fate of the righteous. The righteous shall flourish like the palm tree, he shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those that be planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. So it doesn't seem like it today. Today those who are being faithful to God are going to be persecuted. All those who desire to live uh, righteously in Christ shall suffer persecution. And and even the covenant, the physical descendants of Jacob are unfaithful. They they, they don't many of them don't even know who they are. The people of Judah don't care about Christ for the most part. It's all wrong. But ultimately, in this Sabbath rest, this time of rest, it will all be made right. And those that be planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. And that's much of our work is to push this narrative out there so people can understand the Bible so that they have time to repent and turn to God. Verse 14. They shall bring forth fruit in old age. So God wants, this is his vineyard. And this is why he planted it, so he could enjoy the fruit. And now he will. They shall bring forth fruit in their old age. They shall be fat and flourishing. This is after the destruction, which is the work of God's hands. All of this desolation is by design. And it's part of the work of God's hands to ultimately yield the Sabbath rest. They shall bring forth fruit in old age. They shall be fat and flourishing. And you can think of the prophecies by Jeremiah that there shall yet be singing and dancing in the streets of Jerusalem and the old man will walk with the young child in Jerusalem this is this is the sabbath this is the millennial period to show that the lord is upright the lord is upright everything he does is right he's righteous and 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 he will be right he will fulfill his covenant to abraham isaac and jacob to show that the lord is upright he is my rock And there is no unrighteousness in him. So at the end of book 3, there's this puzzling kind of inquisition about God. What are you doing, God? Even though we know the psalmist understands that God ultimately will be faithful to his covenant. And now now we see the answer. There is no unrighteousness in God. The unrighteousness was in his people. There's unrighteousness in the Gentiles. But there's no unrighteousness in God. Now, I said this takes us back to Psalm 1. Psalm 1 and 2 are the keynotes for the entire psaltery. And they sort of set the themes for the entire psaltery. Psalm 1 being about righteousness and Psalm 2 being about enthronement. And so we see exactly what we just read here in Psalm 92, which is dedicated to the Sabbath. Psalm 1 verse 5 says, Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Exactly what we saw in Psalm 92. Now, as we transition from Psalm 92 to Psalm 93, it's good for us to go back to Psalm 2, which is an enthronement psalm and sets the other theme. So there's a theme around the righteous uh, being established and the wicked perishing. And that goes through the psaltery, although the wicked at times seem like they're prospering. Uh, ultimately, they will not. And then Psalm 2 is about the king. And it says, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, and, and drop down to verse 6 here, yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. So now we transition uh, from the Sabbath, the picture of the Sabbath rest, the millennial rule, to the actual king who's going to be ruling during this Sabbath rest. And for the next few Psalms, they're all going to be celebrating the enthronement of the king. Psalm 93 and verse 1. Very strong. There's no introduction here. No, no, uh, it's not ascribed to any uh, attributed to anybody, just straight in. The Lord reigns. That's it. That's all we need to know. The Lord reigns. So it ends with there's no unrighteousness in him, he reigns, and he's going to make the world right. The Lord reigns, he is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed with strength, wherewith he has girded himself. The world also is established. That it cannot be moved. So all these um, climate change activists and the world is going to be destroyed. And God says no. He established the world. It cannot be moved. And He is clothed with strength. He He has established His this creation. He's the King. Your throne is established of old. You are from everlasting. So this king is from everlasting. And, and that should remind us of the exchange now with, uh, jo- with um, the Jews in, in John's uh, gospel. Then said the Jews unto him, you're not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, truly, truly, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. I am. He is from everlasting. And then in John 17 and verse 24, Father, I will that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world, before the world was even created. There was this beautiful, loving relationship between the Father and Christ. So he is from everlasting. And he is the king that's going to be established in the earth. This is the righteous king that, that is girded with strength and glory. And the whole world, this is like mind-blowing. The whole world, not, not just the covenant community, the whole world is going to see the glory of the Lord. The whole world is going to worship him. There'll be no more rebellion. They're going to see how powerful he is and how, how ridiculous it is to resist him, to ignore him, to discredit him, to humiliate him. None of that's going to be happening anymore. And the whole world is going to acknowledge this great God and that he is from everlasting. And he now sits on his rightful throne. Psalm 93. The floods have lifted up, O Lord, the floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lifted up their waves. And the idea here is you think of a hurricane or you know, a tidal wave. Um, you, you think of these powerful uh, forces of the water and, and how man is powerless in front of this kind of force. And, and it's really pictures a, you know, think of a very chaotic time and, and what these waters can do when they're, they're out of control. But this God has full control. And think of Mark 4 in verse 37, that there arose a great storm of wind and the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. This is certain death. This is certain death. And Christ was in the back part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they woke him, saying unto him, Master, do you not care that we perish? That's, That's the fate of man in front of these powerful, powerful waves. And Christ arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. This is the God. This is the king that the whole world will come to acknowledge. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters. Yes, Psalm 93, verse 4. Yeah, than the mighty waves of the sea. He's mightier than all of that. And this is very, you know, human beings are nothing in in, in the face of this kind of force. But the Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters yes than the mighty waves of the sea your testimonies are very sure holiness becomes your house o lord forever what a beautiful psalm and what a beautiful introduction here to book 3 of the psalms which uh you know we covered tonight psalm 92 and 93 uh over the next few weeks as we get into these enthronement psalms, it's, just, it's really something that we have to establish in our minds, regardless of what's going on today. And men are always battling for power, and then when they get power, they get drunk on power, and they oppress, and, and many of them have no clue what God's plan is. And so even if they're best intentioned, they're, they're just working for Satan, working against the plan of God. But this God that we serve, this God that we serve is from everlasting to everlasting. And He's coming to establish His righteousness in the earth. What a mighty God we say! What, what a mighty, mighty God we serve, brethren. Let's let's rejoice. Let's let's not be discouraged uh, as we see the world unravel around us. It's okay. All of this chaos, God is allowing it because it's all part of the work of His hands. That ultimately, it's shaping His people and driving His people to a deep, deep repentance. Our job is as the first fruits of the covenant community. Our job is what we're doing now. It's to study the scriptures, to understand what God is doing, and then to declare his faithfulness to the covenant community and to the Gentiles as a warning, so that the whole world can know we are his witnesses. What a mighty God we serve. God bless, brethren.